There's much wisdom in Solomon's instructions to his son. So get wisdom, get insight. Don't you love that one verse? The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Right? There needs to be that desire. You want to pursue it. And with that in mind, I ask you to turn to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, it's on page 257 in your pew Bible. You might see a heading over your copy of God's Word in this chapter that says, The Last Words of David. And it begins with this sobering statement. Now these are the last words of David. There's something significant about a person's last words. A little over 12 years ago, when our family first moved to Webster, New York, I actually had to leave a week after our move to go to a previously scheduled study trip to England. And I remember looking at so much of church history that was there and and how much John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, had influenced that city and, and really the globe for Christ. And one of my favorite moments during that study trip was when uh, a few of us students and the professor who was with us were huddled together in the tiny bedroom where John Wesley breathed his last. We were there right next to his bed, and our professor bowed in prayer with us as we thanked God for John Wesley's legacy and how the Lord used him mightily to bring untold scores of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then our professor reminded us of the very last words that John Wesley spoke, words that he repeated twice from his deathbed. He said, the best of all is, God is with us. The best of all is, God is with us. Those final words of John Wesley were filled with faith and assurance. And that is no less true of David's final words, both in his last public address to Israel here in 2 Samuel 23, as well as in his final private charge to his son and successor, Solomon, in 1 Kings 2, which we'll look at soon. As we consider this, I want you to think about that David in these addresses focuses not so much on the past or even the present, but he has an eye to the future. And this is a great theme as we kick off a new ministry year here at Webster Bible Church. This past week, I read an article that said September is the new January. And there's a sense in which I probably don't really need to explain that because that is essentially true for most of us. Uh, September signals the end of summer, the start of the school year, and the beginning of fall activities. September for many of us is reset month, even more so than the month of January. So as we launch into another year and look to the future, we as a congregation today can benefit greatly from David's last words. His final words can mark a fresh beginning for us. So look with me, if you would, at David's public address in 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 to 7. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, 
When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So David introduces this final poetic declaration, his final public address, by calling it the Oracle of David. An oracle is a divine message delivered to man, usually in response to a request for guidance. David is proclaiming to the people what the Spirit of the Lord, the God of Israel, the Rock of Israel has made known to him. This is in his preamble to the main part of his message. And so therefore Israel was to pay close attention to David's words because David's words were the Lord's words. And they are God's words to us today. And I pray that you would give fresh attention to God's word this morning as we begin another year together. Like I said, verses 1 to 3 are the preamble to the main message. Look at your text and you'll see that David begins with his humble roots. He refers to himself as the son of Jesse. This takes us way back to the beginning of the series, which started a year ago this month. David was the eighth son of Jesse. And he was the one who was watching his father's sheep in the outlying fields of a little town called Bethlehem. But this boy became, look at it, the man who was raised on high. Isn't that beautiful? The boy became the man who was raised on high. Only a boy named David, but he was raised as a man on high. The NIV says that he was exalted by the Most High. And either translation works because we know from the narrative of Scripture that the Lord is the one who raised David up. The Lord is the one who exalted him. And God not only made David a great man, but David became, in fact, the anointed, literally the Messiah, small m, of the God of Jacob. He was God's chosen king. And again, this takes us back to where we're first introduced to David in 1 Samuel 16. You might remember when the prophet Samuel anointed him, and we read that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And he gave him victory and success wherever he went, for he was God's man to reign over Israel. It says here that the Lord was the God of Jacob. Most of us know who Jacob is. He's the grandson of Abraham. And Jacob was also named Israel. So, so Jacob is an alternative name for the nation Israel. So the God of Jacob is the God of Israel. But I think there's another reason why David refers to the Lord as the God of Jacob. Because Je- uh, David has just described that the Lord had raised him up. The Lord had anointed him. And God had promised Jacob hundreds of years earlier, way back in Genesis 35, Kings shall come from your own body. And so David and his descendants were a fulfillment of God's covenant 
to Jacob. David served the God who keeps his promises. The Lord raised up David and, and had been David's rock, David says. In the previous chapter, he refers to the Lord multiple times as the rock of my salvation. And here he says that the Lord is also the rock of Israel. And the Lord, the rock of Israel, the rock of David had revealed himself to David. He had made himself known to David. He had spoken to David. He had given David a vital message that was for all the people. And so David is now passing on this message from the Lord to the nation as a whole in his final public address as king. The core of the message is a key principle that is recorded in verses 3 to 4. Look again at those verses. The principle is this. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The first two lines of that quote are the most important, and they're quite pithy in Hebrew. They literally read this way. Ruler over mankind, righteous. Ruler, fear of God. That's a, that is a punchy statement that sticks in the mind. Leave it up there for a second so we can see. The word ruler is a Hebrew term that appears nowhere else in the books of Samuel. It focuses not so much on the person who is ruling as to the nature of his rule. And we see that in the verses that follow. This rule will be over it says man, but the word is actually mankind. It's the Hebrew word Adam, Adam. Just as David understood the Lord's promise in 2 Samuel 7, that God's covenant with him was instruction for mankind, so David here speaks of a ruler whose dominion will be over all mankind. It will embrace all of humanity. Furthermore, we're told this ruler will be righteous. Can you imagine such a thing? Over the course of human history, the nations, including our nation, has had many rulers. How many of the rulers that have ruled in human history could actually be called righteous? Very few. And none perfectly so. You know, there was a time when David's rule was described this way in 2 Samuel 8.15. It says, David reigned over all Israel and did what was just and right for all the people. Then three chapters later, we have the affair involving Bathsheba and the killing of her husband, Uriah. With that dark stain on David's record, it's hard to regard even his rule as righteous. But this ruler to come will be marked by the fear of God, his kingdom will be characterized by this pervasive grasp of God's greatness, His holiness, His majesty, and His glory. When uh, Ruthie and I were on vacation last month, we went down, had never been there before, Edisto Beach in South Carolina. And uh, a couple of you emailed us or texted us saying, hey, we love Edisto Beach. And, and having been there, we understand why. It was like a nice, quiet, out-of-the-way place. And, and we were about a mile uh, or so from the beach. But we got up one morning while it was still dark, and we drove to the beach, and we grabbed our chairs, and we sat there on the beach waiting for the sun to rise. And... Um, I'm a morning person, Ruthie is not, but she agreed to get up with me, 
And when the sun rose, it was worth it, wasn't it? Right? It was an utterly beautiful sunrise. We were not disappointed. In 2 Samuel 23, 4, the, the promised ruler that is to come is compared to a glorious sunrise. And he is compared also to a gentle rain. So, so the gentle rain combined with the warmth and the light of the sun, this combination brings abundant growth, lush growth. And if you look at the words that David is using there, it's actually reminiscent of Genesis 1. It's a return to paradise. A return to the way the world was and, and should be. It's a wonderful picture. It's, it's a delightful dream. And we look at this, this kind of a rule, someone who, who dawns on people like a morning sunrise and there's lush growth everywhere over all mankind. And we wonder, it's, you know, it's a beautiful picture, but isn't it too good to be true? David says no. Because it is, amen, hallelujah. Because it is directly tied to God's everlasting covenant with David. David had already tasted throughout his life the Lord's goodness. But as his years draw to a close, he knows that the best is yet to come. For God had guaranteed that the throne of his kingdom would be established forever by one of his descendants. That descendant, the ultimate one, as has already been pointed out in the pastoral prayer, was none other than Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of David. He is the righteous ruler here spoken of. He is the ultimate king whom David foreshadowed. At the beginning of the New Testament book of Romans, Paul says that he was commissioned by God, that he was sent by God to preach the glorious gospel of God, the good news of God. And then Paul says in verses 3 and 4, God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Romans 1, 3-4. And in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, David says, Will God not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? Isn't that a man who is filled with glorious optimism? With true hope, will not God bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? God would. Just as we are saved by, by looking back at what Jesus did as the Son of God who gave His life for the sins of the world and was raised again from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, offering therefore forgiveness and eternal life to all who repent of their sins and trust in Him alone as their Savior. So David looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah with the capital M, of whom he was a foreshadowing. A man of holy optimism, a man with hope. Will God not bring about my whole salvation and my every desire? But it's important to understand that David's confidence in the Lord was formed and nourished by God's promise to David. This was not an empty optimism. This was not a pie-in-the-sky kind of worldview. This view of David of the future was based on nothing less than the fixed and sure promise of Almighty God. Do you have that kind of confidence? 
as you look to the future, and from a natural standpoint, I understand kind of this doomsday report. But as you look to the future, do you exhibit the confidence of David that God will bring about your whole salvation and that God will fulfill your every desire? Now, this is not a, a name it and claim it, a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of gospel. When it, because Jesus will be the righteous ruler. He is the righteous ruler. And when it says that God will bring about your every desire, it's saying every desire that you would truly wish, if you could see things as God sees them, God will bring them about. And it will be the best dream you could have ever hoped for really come true. The Bible says that in the ages to come, eons and eons throughout eternal he will continue to show us just how kind he is to us in christ jesus an amazing thought as many of you know i've, I've mentioned this previously in previous weeks i've been over the summer reading the my favorite missionary biography on adoniram judson it's a 500 pages on almost done reads like a novel. It's utterly amazing, highly recommended. To the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. Biography on Adoniram Judson, the first American foreign missionary. And probably one of the most critical parts of his life, critical parts of the book, he, he's falsely accused of being a traitor as a spy in Burma, modern-day Myanmar, and he's put in what is called the death prison. Separated from his wife and children, and for nearly two years, he languishes in this death prison due to starvation, malnutrition, and torture. And the Lord brings him through that, but on the other side of that, the wife who so faithfully would deliver meals to him and prayed so consistently for him and, and went to bat for him and, in countless ways making appeals to make sure that he would not die and would one day be delivered. Soon after that, his first wife, Nancy, uh, also known as Ann Hasseltine, she dies. The child that he had by her dies while yet an infant. And yet, Years later, as, as Adoniram is being interviewed regarding how did God bring you to that, what is your perspective, all that he said, and this has also been attributed to William Carey, missionary to India, the father of modern, mission, uh, father of modern missions. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. The future is as bright as the promises of God. But I think it's fair to tell you, as I'm giving this illustration, that Adoniram said this as a man who had already looked back on the historic reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and had trusted in Christ as a Savior. But there was a sense in which Adoniram, too, was looking forward to the future, knowing that God would keep his promises. And there were other promises that were yet to be fulfilled regarding the return of Christ and the eternal joy that would be his. Now, this is not to say, and this is where there might be a spirit of empathy here, that Adoniram's faith never faltered. After the death of his first wife, after he had come through prison, after he suffered the death of their baby, he sunk into deep depression. And he ostracized himself from the Christian community, and he went off into the jungle thinking he was no good to anybody, perhaps not even to God. He sat for days 
next to an open grave that he had dug himself and just sat there by the grave for days. But even during that darkest hour, he was sustained by future grace. Future grace is a term that has been popularly coined by John Piper, who writes this, quote, I don't just mean grace that comes to us in the distant future, like at the second coming of Christ. Clearly, that is coming. It is referred to in 1 Peter 1.13 that we are to hope fully in the grace that is coming to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there is going to be great grace on Judgment Day because we believe in Jesus. What I have in mind when I say future grace is the grace we'll receive at the second coming and the grace that is arriving every moment as I move into the future. So future grace is God's power, provision, mercy, and wisdom, everything we need in order to do what God wants us to do five minutes, five weeks, five months, five years, or 5,000 years from now. That's future grace. It's just not something that's way off in the distance where it's merely something that's at Christ's coming. That's the culmination of it. But it's a grace that is with us every second of every day, as God's people progress into the future every moment of our lives. If that doesn't get you juiced, I don't know what will. I don't know what will. This morning, it's the 10th of September, I was reading the 10th chapter of Proverbs, and I came across this statement in verse 24. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Solomon learned what David had learned, that God would bring about his whole salvation and his every desire. If you have embraced Jesus Christ as your king, you can be sure that God will bring about your whole salvation and your every desire. And this, again, is not as the world sees it. You will be prosperous you will be successful but that is as god defines it not the world remember what we read in psalms 1 blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of those who mock god who mock his people but his delight is where it's right here it's in the law of the lord and in god's law he he meditates day and night And the Bible says that he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, and in all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. And so in Christ, the righteous ruler, the ultimate king, we find not only strong encouragement, but we also find a stellar example of leadership, of good authority. If you want to exercise authority well in whatever role of influence God has called you, whether as a parent in the home, a pastor or ministry leader in the church, a teacher in the classroom, a politician in the public square, a corporate executive in the business world, the captain of a sports team, then take your cue from Jesus. Use the authority you are given. Use the authority in the fear of God. Use your authority in humility. 
Use your authority for the good of those who you lead. And use your authority for the glory of God. And when you fall short of God's righteous standard, which you will, because we all do, you can rejoice that Jesus has met that standard for you. And that he restores, renews, and refreshes all who trust in him. That's good news. But it's not all that David declares. David's final public address actually ends on a negative note, which I'll read in a slightly modernized translation so it makes a little more sense. In verses 6 to 7, he says, But the godless are like thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down, and they will be totally consumed by fire. This ominous ending actually completes the picture that we are given of this righteous ruler who brings both blessing and judgment. And that, I think, is really what we see in David's final public address and in his final private charge to Solomon, which we'll look at in a moment. The righteous king's rule brings both blessing and judgment. The righteous king's rule brings both blessing and judgment. Now, throughout the course of David's life, he encountered a number of godless people, did he not? People who opposed God, opposed the people of God, who opposed God's anointed king. And David is saying those people who oppose God, his people, and his king will go down in flames. Their doom is inescapable, for they will be judged by the universal righteous ruler who rules in the fear of God and whose rule extends to all of humanity. This mix of blessing and judgment that we see in David's final public address to Israel is evident not only here, but also in his final private charge to his son and successor, Solomon. With that in mind, turn over now to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. It's on page 251 in the Pew Bible, if you're using that resource. This chapter begins on a somber note. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. I am about to go the way of all the earth. That's true, isn't it? We're all going to die. Earlier in his life, David had testified in one of his psalms to the Lord, my times are in your hands. Solomon would later write in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything, a time to be born and a time to die. Probably every single one of us knows our birth date, but God alone knows our death date. The time had come for David, the king of Israel, to die. And he knew that that day was very near. We're all going to die. Even children know at some level that death comes to us all. In his book, The Conviction to Lead, Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, my alma mater, begins a chapter titled The Leader in Death by telling us his 
family's favorite summer movie. Some of you may have seen it. It's called What About Bob? How many of you have seen I Am Curious? Okay, quite a few, probably about half of you. Comedy starring Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. One of the movie's most interesting characters is Siggy, an 11-year-old named for his father's hero, Sigmund Freud. Siggy is quite thoughtful and insightful just in general, but especially for an 11-year-old. And at a crucial point in the movie, Siggy, who is always dressed in black from head to toe, says to Bob, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And there's nothing we can do about it. Siggy's right. We are all going to die. And Christians have a right perspective of death. We understand that death is the result of human sin, and it is the final enemy destroyed by Christ. We know that in the end, Jesus wins. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Amen? And yet while we know that, and while that is true, as long as this age continues, cemeteries will continue to fill up. Moeller, who keeps a very realistic model of a human skull on the left corner of his writing desk as a reminder of his own mortality, writes, quote, What does this have to do with leadership? Everything. We lead with the knowledge that our time is limited and that someone will inevitably take over for us. End quote. And that's what's happening here in 1 Kings 2. David is about to die. And Solomon, his son, is about to take over as king. Now, we've already seen last week that Solomon has already been anointed as king, and he has been co-regent with David for some time now. We don't know how long. It was probably a very brief time span, because when Solomon was crowned king, David, remember, was old and cold. Remember? He was frail and on his deathbed. So it probably wasn't long. By the way, um, David Davies sent me an email early last week with a video clip of King Charles III's coronation, which I watched. And he pointed out that the choir sang an anthem called Zadok the Priest. And this anthem is based on the biblical account of Zadok the priest anointing Solomon king. The anthem was written by George Frederick Handel, who wrote Messiah, and has been used in British coronations ever since the late 1700s. I just thought that was a pretty cool fact. I looked up the lyrics. I, I actually watched the video, listened to the choir but remember when we looked at the coronation of solomon it said like the celebration was so great it's like the earth was split by the noise well here's the lyrics you 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 see the how they borrow from the words of scripture and emphasize this spirit of celebration zadok the priest and nathan the prophet anointed solomon king 
And all the people rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. And all the people rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. Rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. And all the people rejoiced, 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 and said, God save the king. Long live the king. God save the king. May the king live forever. Amen, amen, alleluia, alleluia, amen, 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 alleluia, amen. <laughs> so there's kind of a driving point in that anthem. It's, <clears throat> it's celebrating God's anointed king. And as you recall, if you were with us last week, that was a great day of celebration, and rightly so, because it was a fulfillment of God's promise to David that his own son would sit on the throne. So when David's time, literally it says, his days drew near to die, my utmost conviction is that this promise by God was still very much at the forefront of David's mind. Because there's this connection, David's days draw near to die. And 2 Samuel 7, 12 says, the Lord said to David, when your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Like I said, we don't know how, how old Solomon was, how much of there was this, this co-reigning period, or even what age Solomon was when he actually became solo king. But considering the fact that Solomon reigned for 40 years, it's reasonable to assume that he was still somewhat of a youth when he ascended the throne of Israel. Earlier in our service, Brother Kevin read Proverbs 4, where Solomon gives instructions to his sons and says, did you catch it? When I was a son with my father, David, tender and precious to my mother, Bathsheba, he taught me and said, your heart must hold on to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Now we saw last week in 1 Kings 1, that David did not discipline or ever correct his fourth son, Adonijah. Remember the guy that made a play for the throne? Adonijah was David's fourth son, but Solomon was David's tenth son. And so Solomon still would have been a boy when Adonijah was an adult. And I'm thinking that David saw the errors of his ways. He saw the effect of his permissive parenting. And I think that David repented of that and said, I'm not going to let that happen with Solomon. I'm going to give him the instructions of the Lord. I'm going to raise him in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, unlike I did with my older children. Solomon says David, when he was still precious in the sight of his mother, tender. And so the commands that we read, David giving Solomon here are not like these last-minute commands on his deathbed, like David hadn't done that before. Now all of a sudden he's trying to instruct his son in the ways of the Lord. These are really the culminations of teachings that David had been given Solomon for all his life. <clears throat> in verses 2 to 4, he says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. 
and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes and His commandments, His rules, His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The year I graduated from high school, 1996, no, it was actually 1986, um, there was a, a band I used to listen to, a rock band called Boston, and uh, it was that year they came out with their album, uh, Third Stage, and in that album was a song that was, a t- that was titled, What Does It Take to Be a Man? What Does It Take to Be a Man? And as a young man, I listened to the song. They weren't all necessarily bad thoughts in there, but they weren't a scriptural answer to what it takes to be a man. What does it take to be a man? David gives Solomon the answer right here. He gives us the answer right here. What does it take to be a man? What does it take to be a man? Obedience to the word of God. If you want to be a man, a real man, or if we put it in the female, a mature, strong, virtuous woman of God, obey God's word. The word makes the man. The benefit of obeying God's word is that you'll have success in whatever you do. We, we, we talked about that briefly from Psalm 1, 1 to 3. And all that he does, he prospers. Not as the world defines it, but as God defines it. In 2 Kings 2, verse 4, David says that if Solomon obeys God's word, he will not only have personal blessing, but he will have a perpetual dynasty. Now, going by what David says here, the continuity of the dynasty depended on obedience to God's word. So that raises attention because in some places, God talks to David like the the covenant is unconditional. This is something God's going to do. But in verses like this, it sounds like it's conditioned upon the obedience of the king. How do we resolve that tension? Well, praise God, the tension is ultimately resolved in Jesus Christ, right? Because he perfectly obeyed God's law and God fulfilled his covenant through Jesus in the ultimate sense. But Dale Davis also provides a helpful, succinct answer in his commentary, and I quote, the unfaithfulness or disobedience of Solomon would not negate God's promise to David, but there will be no enjoyment of the blessedness of that promise unless a king remains faithful. End quote. We find the same sort of teaching in the New Testament. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Does them. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, not being mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And again, Dale Davis says, whether it is the Davidic king or a disciple of Jesus, true stability only comes through obedience to the Lord's command. Let me say that again. True stability comes only through obedience to the Lord's commands. If you want things to be well with you, husbands and wives, you want things to be well in your marriage. Children, you want to be blessed of the Lord. You want to have genuine family harmony and prosperity in the truest sense. 
You as a single person want to be prosperous in all that you do from God's perspective? Then build your life on the Word of God and worship the hero of the Word of God, Jesus Christ. That's what Tony Meredith says. Build your life on the Word of God. Worship the hero of the Word, Jesus. What a king we have. Sin is our attempt to make ourselves king. Salvation is in Christ, the king substituting himself for his servants. He lived the life we could not live in. He died the death we should have died. Now he is the risen and reigning exalted Lord. Glorify and enjoy him. End quote. But obedience isn't easy. <laughs> Much easier said than done. And that's why David says to Solomon, be strong and show yourself a man. Now more than ever, it seems, obedience requires spiritual backbone of those who would follow Christ. It takes courage to do what is right, especially when everybody else in our society seems to be going the opposite direction. And that's why we are told in the New Testament and really much of the Old Testament that this strength can only come from the Lord. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Because you cannot be strong as a man or a woman, as a boy or a girl on your own. You must rely fully on Christ. Solomon's commitment to the Word of God and his reliance on the Spirit of God would require him to administer justice. If he was to be a righteous ruler, he would have to reward those who did good and punish those who did evil. This responsibility is laid out in the last part of David's charge, verses 5 to 9. For the sake of readability, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation, verses 5 to 9. David says, And there's something else. You know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me when he murdered my two commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace, staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think best, but don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. Be kind to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. Make them permanent guests at your table, because they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember Shimei, son of Girah, the men from Bahurim and Benjamin. He cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him. But that oath does not make him innocent. You are a wise man, and you, know, you will know how to arrange a bloody death for him. And those are David's actual final words. In commenting on these verses, John Woodhouse writes, These are David's very last recorded words in the epic story of his life that began in 1 Samuel 16. Surely one of the greatest stories ever told. Are you disappointed? Do you feel that it would have been nicer if David's last words were more generous, less severe? However uncomfortable we may feel with this, it should remind us that God's promised king will bring justice. David was right to see this. And we too must see, and this is a quote from Scripture, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 9. Praise God, he says, there is more to the glorious gospel of God than this, but there is not less. End quote. The righteous king's rule brings both blessing and judgment. That's the main message we get from the final words of David, both in his public address to Israel and in his private charge to his son, Solomon. So the point of application is build your life on the word of God and celebrate the hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And this takes us to the final verses of our text and the last point of the sermon, the promised kingdom, the promised kingdom. Verses 10 to 12. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. God kept his promise. And the kingdom of Solomon, David's son, was firmly established. Solomon's kingdom was a foretaste of the ultimate kingdom to come. In fact, brothers and sisters, it has already commenced. For Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And at the end of the age, the kingdom of Christ will come in all its fullness. And of that kingdom, there will be no end. Those who yield to King Jesus now taste the goodness of the Lord and his kingdom in this age, even as we look forward to the day when his righteous reign will be revealed in all of its consummate glory. This reminds me of an old Steve Green song, the chorus of which I think makes for a fitting close to this sermon and to this series. When his kingdom comes, what a difference. When things are in earth as they are in heaven, when all has been settled and my heart is his throne, oh, what a difference when his kingdom comes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I feel that even in our time here this morning as we've looked at David's final words, we have but scratched the surface of their significance. And yet we know enough from our study this morning to exalt the ultimate king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our prayer, Father, and it is our expectation and hope, even as it was David's, that you will fulfill You will bring about our whole salvation and you will fulfill our every desire. We recall Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 that you, God, are able to do um, far above all that we can ask or even imagine according to the power that is at work within us. 
the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it is our prayer that you, that your son, would receive glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And we pray these things in his holy name. Amen.